Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. This is critical. If you want to make a good in, a return, a good return on God's investment in your life, if He's given you whatever gifts and skills and passions He's given you, then you need to say, if I'm going to serve the people of Christ, I'm going to purpose specifically, purpose to make them better people. And that is our passion, or at least it should be. It should be our focus. There's a phrase people use when they see someone being courageous or unique. They're living their best life. Sometimes it's meant in jest, but much of the time when we see people living their lives to the fullest, it fills us with a sense of awe. So how do we ensure we're living our best life? Well, Pastor Mike Fabares says the secret is by serving the body of Christ with the goal of making each person better. Well, that's our subject today on Focal Point. Well, here's Pastor Mike. Great passage. Second Samuel chapter 5, you know the context if you've been with us. David anointed the king long time ago, but yet to realize the power and position of the throne. He is not yet doing what he had been designed and born to do, but now in this passage, after years and years of waiting and years of turmoil and years of struggle and years of hardship, in verse number 3, of 2 Samuel chapter 5, the Bible says, All the elders of Israel had come to the king, King David at Hebron, and the king made a compact with them. And look at these words. This is critical. It says, They anointed David king over Israel. It just lays there on the page. It seems like a nondescript little set of words. But if you've been with us, you recognize that it has been 21 years since Samuel had said to David, You're going to be the next king. Verse 3 says, finally, every single obstacle out of the way, David is now the king, recognized as such. It was the great thing that God had designed his life to accomplish, to be a king. What's that all about? Interesting phrase at the bottom of verse 2, if you'd look at this passage, that the people recited the well-known prophecy that came through the prophet about what David was called to do. And here's the words of God. It says, And the Lord said to you, bottom of verse 2 I'm reading from, You will shepherd, circle that word, my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Now, ruler is the title, and I understand that's what they call him. He's the king, he's the ruler. But shepherding is the job description. Now, if you're David and you knew what it was to be a shepherd, when you hear that word, you're not going to be too excited. I know what shepherding's all about. I don't want to be a shepherd. I want to be a king. I want people to come in and say, Your Majesty, Your Highness. I want ladies to you know, put olives in my mouth and wave palm branches at me. I want people to come and throw their tax money at my feet. I want to be the king. That's at least what I would think. And God says, No, the job description of the king, at least in Israel, will be shepherding. Do you know what shepherding is all about? I don't know, I've had minimal contact with sheep, but the contact I've had getting to know these farm animals is that they're rotten, lousy, dumb, bullheaded, stinky, foolish animals, and I wouldn't want to be in charge of a group of them. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like a lot of fun to roam around on the countryside and feed them and take care of them, and when they wander away, to bring them back and to help them and nurture them and woo them and care for them and just forget it. Leave that to some little you know, kid out there who needs a few extra bucks. Don't make that the job description of the number one slot in the kingdom. 
And yet that's exactly what God does. He says, I want my king to view his job as a shepherd. And when a shepherd shepherds, he realizes his life is not his own. It is not about the sheep sitting around lauding and hailing the wonderful shepherd. It's about a bunch of needy people that need direction and help and feeding and attention and care and concern. And so he's called in a very real sense to be a servant to these people. Would you jot down on your outline if you're taking notes this morning that that's what we really need to come to grips with? The first thing we need to know is that we were, as my grandpa used to put it, we are saved to serve. Or you can put it this way. We are people that are designed to be servants. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be serving others. And when he invests in our lives and gives us gifts and designs our life and gives us an education and a background and a family and health, he says, I want you to do something with that. What, what should I do? Make money? No, that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is being a servant. Serving is what it's all about in God's economy. And it's not just for kings and it's not just for pastors. It is for everyone. If you'd look down in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Look with me at verse number seven. Now to each one, a manifestation of the Spirit. What does that mean? That God has in some way manifested himself in us. He has given us what he's given us. He's been good to us, kind to us. He's been gracious to us. The Spirit has been good and kind and gracious to each one of us. For what purpose? For the common good. Context here is the church, not the community, not the world, not the nation, not the city, not the neighborhood. The common good, the target is God's people. I had a friend of mine who uh, I met, very unique, very successful businessman. He realized that all that was pretty much futile. And he thought, you know what? All of this needs to be used to try and benefit the church. And he's not a pastor. He's a layman. He's got his secular business, but his focus is on blessing the church with what he has. Not just financially, although he does great things and he's wonderful in, in being generous with his cash, but he gives all of his energy, his attention, his time, his focus in trying to see how he can bless and serve the church. And when I first met him for the first time, he had a t-shirt on and it said X100. I thought, X100, what is that about? What kind of cryptic thing? You're weird, what does that mean, X100? And he said, you know, the parable of Christ about the seed and the sower. He said, some bore fruit, some 30, some 60, some hundredfold. He said, I want my life to produce a hundred times. I want my life for God and everything he's poured into me to produce hundredfold. Now picture this guy. He was probably, he's probably, he's probably is now 55 years old and he's wearing a white t-shirt with black letters on the X100. And he says, I just want to keep in mind that God has invested in me and I want to make a good return on God's investment. Do you have that attitude in your life? Do you say, whatever God has taught me at my job, whatever God has, has, has equipped me to do, whatever smarts, whatever brains, whatever education, whatever background I have, I just want to be used to bless the church, serve the church. David was reminded of that at the very beginning in the outset of his ministry as the king. And the king was not like the other kings. The kings in the kingdom were called to be shepherds, to be servants. Back to 2 Samuel 5, let's see how he did that. What was the first thing he did? Well, I'll get a little description of his years and the rundown of his reign in verse 4 and 5. But in verse 6, we see how he began to be the kind of shepherd God wanted him to be. And the first thing he does is this great loving shepherd of the nation of Israel, giving and serving and understanding that his life was designed by the great architect to be a servant to the people that God loves most. He decides the first act as the king that he should do in verse number six is to fight. 
Look at it, verse six. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. Now, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, what's the first thing you're going to do when you're a king? I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be, let's go march into battle. But that's exactly what he does. Now, that doesn't make any sense unless you understand the background and the context of what the Jebusites were and where Jerusalem was. Now, you all know where Jerusalem is, right? Picture the map. you got the map of Israel. Where is Jerusalem? Boop, right there. Boop, right in the center of the whole thing. And it says in this passage, and if you know your biblical history, you know the Jebusites lived there. Now, it was hundreds of years previous, it was at least 350 years before this, that Joshua was given the command to march in and wipe out the Jebusites, along with a lot of other wicked, perverse, immoral groups of people. How perverse and wicked were they? These groups of people that lived in Canaan before the Israelites marched in as an arm and an and extension of God's retribution on them. They were so wicked, they used to take their firstborn children and sacrifice them to an idol. Think about that. Big piece of, of wood covered with gold. They would come in and take their firstborn children, slit the necks of their babies, and let the blood of these innocent children roll down the streets of these cities. And God said, they've had enough. These people need to be wiped out. Go in there, make no treaties. That's what Exodus said. Make no treaties with these people. No peace deals. Go in there and wipe them out. Well, how in the world did this Jebusite city hang around for 300 years? Well, Joshua and his men got to, got to the city of the Jebusites, which would become Jerusalem, the city of Salem, Zion. And they said, we can't take this. The walls are too thick. The walls are too high. The people are too tenacious and angry and all that. They're too defensive. You know, let's go on to another city that would be easier to take. And they left it there. And the Jebusites, this immoral, perverse, wicked group of people, because Joshua and his men gave up on it, ended up remaining for years right in the heart of God's promised land. And David says, if I'm going to be a servant of the people, if I'm going to serve the people that God loves most, and I know God loves his people and he wants his people to be holy, then I'm going to see my task as a leader, as a servant, to try and get them to be more holy. Because right now, this little pocket of people are really unfinished business in Israel. They're an area of compromise. The existence of a Jebusite city in the nation of Israel, particularly smack dab in the middle that is just a reminder of the sin in the nation. And you know, if I'm going to be the leader, what I need to do is I need to help them do what they should do. I'm going to assist them as a servant to do what God wants them to do. And that would make them better, more holy, more righteous people, wouldn't it? Number two on your outline, if you're taking notes, this is critical. If you want to make a good in, a return, a good return on God's investment in your life, if he's given you whatever gifts and skills and passions he's given you, then you need to say, if I'm going to serve the people of Christ, I'm going to purpose specifically, purpose to make them better people. And that is our passion, or at least it should be. It should be our focus. Serving the body of Christ, we can get into this thought about serving the body of Christ and forget the whole reason we're doing it. You see, the reason you are to utilize whatever God has given you to serve the body is not so they can be fat and comfortable. It's so that they can be more righteous and holy. Isn't the passion of God in Romans chapter 8 that people would be conformed to the image of his son? Think about that. That's what God really wants. And you say, sign me up to serve because Pastor Mike has said, and this is really the high value of God, that we ought to be servants. Now, what do I do? Help me sign up for a ministry. Well, you need to look for ministries that you think will help the church be more righteous and holy. And you know what? Almost every ministry I can think of in our church in some way relates to that cause. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. We don't have a lot of time, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 real quick. And let me show you that that is the whole purpose that God has given you what he's given you. 
The text in Ephesians chapter 4 makes it really clear. It says in verse 7, old saw by now, we know this song. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given. This is verse 7, Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Sound like Matthew 25? He looked around and said, you have some of that. I'm going to give you some of that. I'm going to give you some of that. Now he's going to lean back and say, okay, let's see what kind of investment I've made. Let's see what kind of profit these investments turn. That's why it says, verse 8 says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. That's what the giftedness thing is all about. Verse 11, some he gave to be in the early church apostles and prophets. Those were foundational gifts according to the first part of Ephesians we learn. But to maintain the church, he gave two other offices that were really important, two other leader upfront type things, evangelists and pastor teachers. Even the word pastor means shepherd. They're servants. But what's the point of those guys? They are to, verse 12, prepare God's people for works of service. So that means everyone's involved in serving. That's the point. That's point number one in our outline. Why? Here's point number two. So that the body of Christ may be what? Built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become, underline it, what? Mature. Attaining to, this is a good phrase to underline, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're not there. We are not, we are not fully reaching the maturity of Christ. We're not. So what can I do to get it there? What can I do to serve in the church that would help Christians get there? I mean, this is so critical. Well, I don't preach and I don't sing. And I don't sing and I don't preach. And I don't preach and I don't sing. So if I don't sing and I don't preach, then I guess I can't do much, can I? Anything that you can think of that filters your, your, your skills and your giftedness and your passion and your experience and your education into serving the church, almost every opportunity we have, unless you make something new up, is in some way going to help that happen. Even as, as what you may think is as mundane as serving donuts. Let's think that one through for a second, right? Can you cut up some donuts, put them on a tray, and put them out there on the patio? Well, you probably can do that. You probably have enough background to do that. But what would that do to make the church a better place? Now think about this. Do you think God designed the church for us to get together, sit in these chairs, face the front, listen to a guy yak for half an hour, and then march through that lobby, go out to our car, get our kids, grab our kids, get in, and go home? No, he didn't. It's not biblical for you to think that church is all about coming in, hearing, singing, and hearing messages, and then going home. The Bible says that we ought to assemble together, and it doesn't feel like much of assembly just because I'm sitting next to someone in church. We ought to, in the assembly, Hebrews says, be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. That means interactions taking place. That means discussions are going on. And that means a cup of coffee and a donut in my hand may assist me, maybe the glue that I need, certainly works for me, right, to keep me from running to my car and going home. I can stop there and do it. So that means that when I serve in the church and I seek to serve donuts, if I think if this helps our church interact, if this helps our church talk to one another, if this helps people from running out the doors and jumping in their car and gets them to stick around and get to know people, then I'm helping them become more mature. And maybe we're getting a little bit closer to the fullness of the measure of Christ. Back to 2 Samuel 5. David in taking this city... And you know he takes it, right? Jebusites say, you can't get in here, verse 6. David says, yeah, I can. <laughs> verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. And it tells all about how they got there, the water shaft and all that. But the bottom line is they won. And David was the victor. He was the victor in accomplishing what Israel needed to accomplish. And that was get this area of compromise out of their life and be more righteous people. And they were. And in the meantime... God says, this guy's a good investment. And in verse 11, 
he says, I'm going to invest more in him. So he prompts the heart of Hiram, king of Tyre. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sends messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel so that he would have a real cushy life and have a lot of fun and be comfortable. See that? That's not there. What is there? David was established by God over Israel and exalted for the sake of God's people, Israel. Oh, what a wonderful realization to sit back and say, God has given me the ability to sing so that I can serve the body and I can make them more righteous. Give me the ability to help kids and relate to teenagers so that we, our church can be more godly. He can present to himself a bride spotless without spot or wrinkle. Man, that, oh, what a good realization that is. But if that is the realization you have, you shouldn't move into verse 13. And David, unfortunately, we see a weak spot here in his life that we've already become acquainted with, and that is he's got a problem. And his problem is seven wives isn't enough. <laughs> That's a problem. And in verse number 13, it says after he left Hebron and he set up this, this capital there in Jerusalem, he took more concubines. That's plural. And more wives, that's plural too. So we got at least four, probably six, maybe eight wives he picks up. He's already got seven. Ain't that enough? No. For David, it wasn't. And we'll see his unbridled sexual appetites end up costing him so much. And we'll learn more about that. You know the classic story of David and Bathsheba, but it's much deeper than that. David cloaking some of that kind of weakness, that Achilles heel in his life, cloaking it behind this cultural kingly practice of having a harem, it was all to be his downfall. Because the problem is, I can't much be good at affecting other people's lives to be more righteous if I myself am not carefully making sure that I'm living righteously. And that is the problem in the church of hypocrisy. People trying to get other people to live godly lives when they themselves are not. And the goal is for us to make sure that in our lives we hate, this is the third thing on your outline, anything that makes us less profitable. Do you hate in your life anything that makes your life less profitable? From God's perspective, when I sin, I am detracting from my effectiveness in helping other people be righteous because sometimes when I sin, I can't then address those topics because I feel guilty. Sometimes when I sin, I don't even want to go and serve anymore because I feel guilty. And all these things pull from the purpose of my life to serve the body of Christ. So I've got to police my life and learn to hate and despise the things that make me unproductive. And I guarantee you, though we don't see it in this passage, David's unbridled sexual appetites end up costing him, and he becomes a very unproductive king. What is your Achilles heel? Perhaps it's sexual desire and appetites that aren't controlled in your life. They're not directed to the confines of marriage. Perhaps it's something else. Maybe like in Matthew 25, he says to that slave, you wicked and lazy slave. Perhaps that's it. Maybe I'm just not serving in the church because I just don't, I can't find the time. Find the time for a lot of other things, but I can't find the time for that. And the bottom line is it may be that God says to us, the problem is you're just lazy. You're lazy. Get off the couch, man. Get down to church. Serve the body of Christ. It is so critical. It is so critical that we, in our lives, protect whatever it is that might make us unproductive. The admission of the steward in Matthew 25 was, I was afraid. And perhaps it's something like fear. Maybe you're not productive in the body of Christ helping people be righteous because you're just afraid. What if I try to teach that Sunday school class and I fail? How many times have I had people talk to me about what they'd love to do in ministry if they weren't so petrified that they would fail? Do it. Just do it. 
God wants you to make a return, to be a productive investment, and he's invested in you, hasn't he? Oh, I know we think we're dirt and we're nobody, and who are we? But God has put stuff in your life. You have some brains, you have some talents, you have some skills, you have some gifts, and all of them come from God. And he's saying, because I've given you so much, I'd like to see something come back. You invest in this world. You never know what'll happen. Bill Gates last summer in the stock market dipped. You remember that in July and August? He lost $9 billion in four weeks. Because the world's investments are never sure, but the Bible says you invest in my bride. I will store up for you treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy it and thieves can't break in and steal it and stock market dips can't whittle it away. You invest in my bride and you watch your life and you try to make them better people. You know what'll happen? I will store it for you treasure in heaven. Man, I want that. I want that not just for the sake of having it, but because it's the best use of my life. And the bottom line today is not counted in dollars, it's counted in service, and so it is for you. So let's get out there this week and try and be a good investment in God's portfolio. Would you do that? You're listening to a message from Pastor Mike Fabares and the second half of a message titled, Doing Your Best to Live a Profitable Life. This is Focal Point. If you'd like the study notes or to listen to the entire study from 2 Samuel chapter 5, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, Christmas is nearly upon us, and every season, families decorate their homes with figures of Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. But no nativity set is truly complete without the Star of Bethlehem hanging above the manger. Yeah, you know, it is interesting that Luke doesn't even mention the star in his account of Christ's birth. Right? Matthew is the gospel that tells us of Magi being led by a star that led them to Jesus, right? People wonder, like, well, what prompted these Magi to search for Jesus? I mean, did news of the shepherd reach that distant land? Was it Daniel's prophecies when he was there in exile? Was it angels that appeared to them or instruct them? I mean, how did this happen? Well, we don't know. We don't have the precise details in the scripture, but we do know that the Magi left their country and in the east, there in Mesopotamia, and that star, they followed it all the way to find the one who was born the king of the Jews, as Matthew 2 says. So, I don't know, the idea of that star leading, right? I, I don't want to make a big stretch here, but I, I, I'm going to say focal point, right? We want to see some commonality with that star in Bethlehem. We'd like to guide people just like that star did and point them to Christ. That's the goal. We want men and women to follow Christ, and we want them to follow Christ through this program. Every day, Focal Point airs on hundreds of radio stations, thousands of people listening on our website and our mobile app. We, we're just grateful that they're hearing God's word, the centerpiece of every program that we broadcast. And the goal is to point them to the truth of Christ. This ministry wouldn't be possible without the help of friends and visionaries like you who want to see this continue. We really rely on these gifts, especially during Christmas, to fund the work that God's called us to do to explore and proclaim the depths of Scripture, as we often say. We want to do that on the radio. We want to do that online. We'd like to do that in print. So if you want to see Focal Point continue its mission to be that beacon of hope and that truth across this country and even around the world, then contact us today with that special year-end gift, and together we'll keep pointing people to Christ. Thank you so much for your support. To give your special Christmas gift to Focal Point, just call 888 320-5885. That's 888-320-5885.
or go online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly donors called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your consistent support plays an important role in helping us plan for the future. And we're so grateful. Sign up to become a Focal Point Partner today when you call 888-320-5885 or sign up online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewey, inviting you to join us again Wednesday as Pastor Mike introduces a message called Basic Instructions for the Challenges You Face. That's coming up Wednesday right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.